0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for this week in Oklahoma politics. Along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel, joining me over Zoom video conference, the Secretary of Defense denied Governor Stitt's request for of a waiver on mandatory vaccinations for Oklahoma's National Guard. Lloyd Austin says members who don't get vaccinated could get barred from drills and training, and even their status could be jeopardized. This is just the latest in the battle as Governor Stitt contends he is the commander-in-chief of the Oklahoma Guard. Neva, what do you think is next for Stitt here?
1: Well, I'm not sure because I think it's been made uh, very clear that uh, the Secretary of Defense uh, believes that uh, that they are not going to grant waivers, that they're going to move forward exactly as outlined, that they have the, in their, in their view, the right to do that. They outlined that. And even though, the concerns that were expressed in the governor's letter uh, were taken into consideration. The view was that it didn't negate the need for military readiness and the requirements around that. So um, I don't know. I mean, when we think about it, under Title 32 of the of the code, the the guard members, while under the control of the governor, when uh, when they've not been uh, uh, taken into uh, a situation under federal you know under un, under some federal prescription they are paid by the federal government and i think uh, as was outlined in that letter i mean uh, the secretary made the point that this that the that with presidential authority according to that uh, uh, according to those prescriptions that the regulations and orders that they can enforce. So uh, the big question will be that, what is the impact on the actual guard members here in Oklahoma? Do they lose pay? Is there something that will happen in terms of of some sort of action based upon not uh, doing what has been prescribed to do? Lots of questions and I don't know, uh, at this point we'll just have to see how it continues to unfold.
0: Ryan.
2: Well, you know, I think let's, and everybody's going to hate me for this. People are throwing things at their radio, but let's fast forward to January, 2024. Governor Stitt is in Iowa and he's on a debate stage uh, with, uh, you know, a dozen other candidates running for president uh, for the Republican nomination. And he's going to say he was the only governor, Republican or Democrat, the only governor uh, that you know, had the guts to stand up to the Department of Defense. Um, now, the way I see that is that it could go the exact opposite way, and that this may be a bridge too far uh, in the governor's politics around COVID. Um, because the fact is, is that no other governor, Republican or Democrat, have asked for this waiver, um, and I think that the reason is is clear: the Secretary of Defense, uh, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, the President of the United States. They command these National Guard troops uh, in a way that allow them to have them ready for service. You know, whether that's a threat at home or a threat abroad, they, these men and women the, uh, in the Air National Guard, the Oklahoma National Guard, they understand uh, that on, on any given day, they could be called up to defend our interests uh, in a foreign land or to have to show up and, you know, rescue their fellow Oklahomans and their neighbors in the midst of a, a disaster, natural disaster or, or, or some other tragedy. Um, you know, I think that the signal that the governor is sending here, uh, or ought to be sending to Oklahoma National Guard soldiers, is that the vaccine is hands down the very best way to protect uh, yourself against COVID. It's, the, it's a very simple step. For these, it's a simple step that the governor took uh, for these soldiers, these soldiers and airmen and women to be ready. Um, and instead, the governor seems to be inviting insubordination uh, and casting doubts about the chain of command. Um, you know, you know, frankly, I, I think that the soldiers that rely on the governor's promise that he has their back here um, are uh, the governor, he may, he may, you know, fully intend to back that promise up, I just don't think he's going to be able to. And frankly, I think that the politics of this shouldn't get in the way. I mean, politics goes into where we send our men and women in uniform. They shouldn't go into whether or not those men and women are ready to go when we call them.
1: Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, Defense Secretary Austin, I mean, made it very clear that the repercussions and consequences would be felt on the individual level. And when we look at that, I mean, as we've talked about before on the program a couple of weeks ago, the uh, by the National Guard's own numbers, the Air National Guard had 89% of its members already fully vaccinated. It's the, it's the Army National Guard where the number is much lower, about 40%, I think it was, that were fully vaccinated. So uh, we'll just have to see, as you say, Ryan. I mean, uh, we don't know what the answers are, but it's pretty clear that the, that the uh, Pentagon has a very strong uh, opinion on this, and we'll see how they exercise it moving forward.
0: A federal judge has halted vaccine mandates for healthcare workers at facilities getting Medicaid and Medicare funding. The court says the requirement might be unconstitutional, so the injunction is in place while it's getting challenged. The news was greeted with celebration from Governor Stitt and Attorney General John O'Connor, who had joined 14 other states in the lawsuit. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this decision?
2: Well, you know, I think that my thoughts aren't far off from where even the the judge in this case uh, um, landed. And that's this isn't going to end with with one federal district court. Um, in fact, this is the, the second case in which a federal district court has considered vaccine mandates. These are ultimately going to be questions that end up in front of the United States Supreme Court. Um, the judge in this case even said that, you know, this, you know, if there's going to be a vaccine mandate that's um, uh, that you condition federal funds for Medicare and Medicaid recipients on, then uh, Congress needs to do that. And he, he said even then, he wasn't sure that it'd be constitutional. I think that if Congress did it, it would, it would almost assuredly uh, uh, be constitutional. I think that even under the existing protocols, the federal government has an interest, uh, a very strong interest in, the, in ensuring that when they deliver these funds to uh, nursing homes and hospitals around the nation, um, that, they, that those hospitals and nursing homes adhere to some bare minimum standards of of care uh, and of public health and public safety. Vaccines aren't brand new. I mean, the idea that uh, this is the first vaccine requirement or mandate, I mean, we just, we certainly haven't, uh, we've been through this before. And if you work in the healthcare industry, especially if you're working in these nursing homes, um, you know, then your ability to contract the uh, virus or to spread it is much higher in, in a very vulnerable population. And you can argue whether or not The mandates are the most effective way to get people uh, vaccinated. Um, But I think that ultimately what we'll begin to see is that circuit courts are going to begin to split on this issue. It'll go to the Supreme Court, and they're going to have to answer the question of whether or not the federal government has that authority. I think that they do, uh, but we're a long ways from a a definitive answer.
0: Neva?
1: I think that's right. We are a long ways away. I think it will go to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think what it did do was uh, uh, this preliminary injunction halted the plans that would have gone into effect nationwide next week. So for 17 million healthcare workers across the country, I mean, it puts this question on hold. And, you know, even the judge in his decision said that uh, it was a matter, while it would ultimately, as we've said, be decided by a higher court, that it did preserve the status quo in this case, meaning that uh, the liberty interests of the unvaccinated required nothing less. So I think I think it was a... Uh, uh, a thoughtful decision by this uh, Louisiana federal judge. Um, we'll see going forward how quickly, uh, given the fact that, as you as you said, Brian, I mean, 14 states suing the Biden administration uh, over 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 this. Um, we'll just have to see. But it, clearly, it's going to go into next year and uh, be quite some time before we have a final resolution.
2: I think it's it's really regrettable though that we've ended up in this situation where we're not really even talking. Yeah. You know, we're almost to the point now where Governor Stitt, who early on had been an advocate for the vaccine, um, you know, got his vaccine publicly at a time whenever there was a lot of skepticism, especially among his political base uh, in the state of Oklahoma. And I think that that was an important thing for the governor to do. But now we've become entrenched in this politics of, of mandate versus no mandate, mask versus no man, you know, and what we haven't heard the governor say is go get your vaccine. Everybody should be going to get their vaccine. And if he is saying that, um, I, you know, my apologies if, he's, if he is saying that, but it's being drowned out by this other conversation uh, around mandates. And I'm sure the governor would say that's Biden's fault. I'm sure Biden would say that's uh, folks like Governor Stitt's fault, but the regrettable situation that we're all in right now is that um, we're not seeing our leaders come together and say, go get your vaccine. And that's okay. the one thing that we can do that can make us uh, all safer.
1: What we're also not seeing, and 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 I think everyone recognizes, is that nationwide we are suffering from a shortage of healthcare workers, and and um, the the whole vaccination requirement question has only uh, you know only caused you know uh, more. Pressure on that situation; it's worsened, you know, staffing and in, in uh, you know in, in our healthcare facilities across the country and here in Oklahoma as well. So uh, it it does uh, it does beg the question of getting getting this move through the legal process as uh, as quickly as possible. And we know quickly when we start talking about legal matters in courts is a, a misnomer, but we do need to move forward so that there the uncertainty of this. Uh, gets resolved uh, absolutely as early as possible.
0: Oklahoma County moves one step closer to getting a new jail. The Oklahoma County Jail Trust approved recommendations to build a new facility within 10 minutes of downtown Oklahoma City. The recommendations would also require approval from the county commissioner and ultimately voters. Neva, do you see a new jail as a possibility?
1: I think it is a possibility. I mean, certainly the conversation is uh, as serious as it's ever been. I mean, this is uh, for the first time really in 30 years. I mean, we have now uh, a developed plan for a better facility, new facility, whatever that happens to be. Uh, This particular advisory uh, council has come up with something uh, to accomplish that without new taxes, which has been one of the Kind of the the sticking points in, in conversations up, you know, from uh, from the beginning is that uh, would taxpayers be interested in you know raising taxes for a new jail? And the appetite for that has not been there. But I think when we look at the fact, we all know the problems. I mean, you know, they they started from almost day one at that at that facility. I mean, you had construction issues, and then we've compounded it with overpopulation and prison escapes and um, staffing issues. Uh, inmate deaths. I mean, the list is long, and I think that this group. I have to. I have to say that uh, Tim Tartabono, who's the executive director of this council, and the folks that have worked diligently for months to come up with uh, you know some real meat on the bones of how to how to how to make this happen. Uh, I applaud their efforts because I think this is where you bring citizens together, you bring professionals together, you bring all of the uh, uh, all of the entities and stakeholders and and folks that need to be involved in the conversation, and then you begin to get a product that actually has some possibilities to uh, to become a reality at some point down the road.
0: Ryan,
2: yeah, I, I think that you know uh, Neva's right. We're with, you know, for the first time in 30 years, probably on the precipice of having a new jail in Oklahoma County. Um, the the existing jail, the one that people are currently being warehoused in right now, as, as uh, folks are listening to this radio program, is a disaster. Uh, it is a cesspool of human rights abuses. Uh, it is an inhumane place uh, to lock people up. And I think that, it, you know, I, I've talked about this a few times on this program, but I think it's important to I have a distinction between jail and prison Uh, jail is where uh, the the vast majority of people uh, that are in jails in the state of Oklahoma are there pre trial they haven't been convicted of anything they haven't pled to anything Uh, prison uh, run by the Department of Corrections is where you go typically after you've been convicted of something or pled to something so this is the way that we're treating people that are essentially accused in Oklahoma uh, and in particular in Oklahoma County. And it's just flat awful. I mean, the idea that if, if you're presumed innocent until proven guilty, uh, we're putting people that are presumed innocent into a place where it's uh, incredibly dangerous. Um, and I think if most Oklahomans uh, had an opportunity to see inside that jail, um, they wouldn't want their uh, worst enemy uh, to have to spend even a minute in that place. Now, that said, I think that there are a lot of remaining questions. How big is the jail going to be? Um, how is it going to be paid for? Uh, are we going to use uh, ARPA dollars from, you know, federal recovery dollars from COVID to pay for this thing? Um, and then I think that, you know, the, the bigger part is how many people do we want to put in there? We heard Commissioner Calvey saying that he wanted an even bigger jail, presumably to to fill it up. We heard the the advisory committee say that they wanted to maintain a 15% vacancy rating. Well, I, I just think that what we should really be thinking about is who, who are the people in this jail pre-trial, um, And right now you're there primarily because you don't have the money to bond out. And it shouldn't be radical to say that either you're too dangerous to be let out or uh, you um, uh, uh, to let loose or you're not. I mean, that's it. You're either too dangerous or you're not. But right now money has everything to do with it. I presume that if we put that uh, test against everybody there, are they too dangerous to let out, then we could clear out a huge number of the people in that existing jail right now, we shouldn't make the same mistakes with the next jail, we may be free from construction issues, but we're still going to have a miserable outcome if we don't do something different.
0: The Pardon and Parole Board denies clemency recommendations for death row inmates Donald Grant and Gilbert Postel. This sets the stage for Grant to be executed on January 27th of next year and Postel on February 17th. The decision comes nearly two weeks after Governor Stitt's decision to commute the sentence of Julius Jones to avoid his execution, as well as the board's decision to request clemency for another death row inmate over concerns about the execution procedure. Ryan, what changed here?
2: Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, we, you know, the, the Pardon and Parole Board, you know, may have been given information about uh, updates to the execution protocol that the rest of Oklahoma simply isn't made aware of. Uh, I don't know that there's been any change uh, within the Department of Corrections that gives me any confidence that the state of Oklahoma is any more competent to carry out a an execution uh, according to the law in Oklahoma um, than they were a month ago or two months ago or five years ago. Uh, we we simply don't know. It's it's a black hole of information. And you know, that's so I I don't know what I don't know what has changed. I, I you know I think that whenever you look at the actions and the partner parole board right now, um, you know, part of it is, you know, these these folks that are coming up, you know, you'll see you'll see they're admitted, you know, they they admittedly did what they did. Uh, and you know the the two cases that that they've looked at recently, are as, as heinous and atrocious as anybody can imagine I mean I think that the problem that we've got as a society is that we look at the results of a crime like that and we can't at the same time realize that the person that committed that act uh, was severely mentally ill uh, or had the uh, the competence of a of a toddler um, I mean these these IQ ranges that we're hearing from folks you know 70 um, you know the the man who is, yeah, you know, he was a child. I say he's a man. He's a man now, but he was a child whenever his father drove him to a trailer park, uh, and his father, that had a traumatic brain injury, drove him to a trailer park uh, to execute a a rival that he felt had caused a motorcycle crash. Um, I mean, these these are things that I think are we can see the the tragic and awful consequences of it. But we should really step back as a society and and think for a second whether you believe in the death penalty or not. Are these the people? Uh, that you really want to strap down on a gurney and take their life? Do we feel safer? Do we feel that justice has been done? Um, because ultimately, the things that put these tragic events uh, into reality—they um, happened long before those uh, those individuals acted on that day. So, you know, I, I think that you know we should we should step back and, and really think about you know who it is that we're going to be killing in our in our name as Oklahomans.
0: Neva.
1: Well, I think what continues to get blurred here is two conversations. I mean, those who want to have the conversation and the debate about the death penalty should it should it stand or should it not? Um, that's one conversation. But in in the instance of these uh, of of these uh, clemency hearings and the actions of the pardon and parole board. We're talking about reviewing and and dealing with matters that have already uh, that have already gone through the, the the legal process. A jury has made a determination, and now you know now we see this kind of again. I think this kind of blurred line of the pardon and parole board um, kind of moving back and forward, trying to have two different uh, two different conversations. I mean. I think what we saw with the uh, Oklahoma City federal judge last week, I mean, in the whole conversation about uh, was this a humane thing to do, I mean, and talking about convulsions and seizures and all of that, you know, we had an anesthesiologist uh, put on the stand as a paid witness for the state who um, made a very, uh, a very direct uh, um, Argument about what had been called into question in terms of the efficacy of the of the drug, the first drug in that three drug sequence, and um, we even saw the uh, kind of the change in in one of the pardon and parole board members who said that he trusted the judgment of uh, of Doctor Irvin Yen after after hearing his testimony, and uh, so. You know, again, I think I think from a public standpoint, I think it is uh, it's easy for all of this to blur together and not recognize that we need to deal with each of these matters. Uh, singularly, I think we lose oftentimes. Uh, you you talk about uh, how heinous and how uh, violent uh, these crimes are that we're talking about that have rendered a death penalty on the person persons in some instances, as you said, Ryan, who have confessed openly to what uh, to what took place. So. Again, this will be a raging debate, Uh, I think, that's going to continue not only in Oklahoma but across the country, but as I've said before for years on this program, if you take into account the seriousness, the gravity, and the fact that Oklahomans still believe that the death penalty should be an option, that it should be used very carefully, judiciously, based upon circumstances, and it is a rarity that we still see it, uh, the death penalty um, invoked, but it does have a place, and I think that this debate will continue, but in these instances, I think folks that want to pay attention need to look at the details.
0: In the case of Donald Grant, his, uh, his uh, IQ was supposed to be very low. He is considered mentally ill. I Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the Supreme Court make a decision that you couldn't execute someone of that level? That's something in the past I don't, don't quite remember, but isn't that the case?
2: Yeah, so there. I mean, there is a prohibition, um, but that that but the level of competency that an individual has to demonstrate in order for the state to constitutionally put them to death is very minimal. Uh, I mean, it's 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 very very minimal. So I mean, the you know, in in these instances, and you know, and I think that you know, we've we do see the randomness of the application of the death penalty as you know neva said that it was rare I, i'd say that it's random and i think that the randomness you know really undercuts uh, a lot of what we uh what we're trying to accomplish here i mean if the idea of the death penalty is to to be a deterrent or to you know be a signal of like you this is a line as a society we do not want you to cross and if you do we're going to take your life i mean we can see that um you're your zip code has as much to do with whether or not you get the death penalty as a particular crime. And I think that that randomness in and of itself you know, speaks to how it's arbitrarily applied and how those arbitrary factors can you know, often be uh, colored by things like race and gender and, and income level. And uh, ultimately, the, the idea that if we met these people that are functioning at a 65, 70 IQ level um, you know, you know. Do you do you think of them as as competent? I mean, obviously they convinced a jury that they were uh, back whenever they were convicted. But I think that that's where the pardon and parole board has an opportunity to step in and say, this this just isn't right. This doesn't serve justice in Oklahoma.
1: You know, I think to say though randomness when you, it undercuts the whole jury process. I mean, a jury in this instance. In this particular case that we're talking about, where it was not only this individual but his brother and his father that murdered violently, viciously, uh, four four individuals. Um, I mean, you have to take into account the facts of the of the and the circumstances that are laid out in a jury trial and a jury deliberating and coming to a conclusion what they believe is uh, you know is the right. Uh, decision in in each individual case, and I think to blanket this and just try to minimize these individual cases is tragic, particularly for the families and the victims uh, of these of these uh, uh, crimes that have been committed, particularly the ones that are as heinous as we're talking about, with the ones that have been in 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 uh, been covered lately and have been at the forefront of what the pardon and parole board has been dealing with.
2: Right. And meanwhile. And, But just to be clear, when I say random, I I mean, um, because I I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, cast doubt on the jury process. But uh, when I say random, what I'm talking about there is a when prosecutors seek a death sentence uh, in a particular case, that's that's where I see the the randomness come into play.
0: Well, meanwhile, we do have Bigler Stauffer, who is 79 years old, been in jail for three decades. He was the one who was granted clemency because of the execution protocol for a 1985 murder, three decades in prison, 79 years old, he's going to die next Thursday unless Governor Stitt does something. Do you think Governor Stitt's going to grant the clemency as, uh, as, as the board had had suggested?
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to make a comment Mm -hmm. on what the governor might do. I I have no, no idea, no indication, but again, it's a process. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're in a process the governor is now part of that process. he will be tasked with making a decision that he alone uh, can make and I think we just have to uh, I think we just have to watch these things as they uh, roll out and uh, and and see how it takes place. So um, it will be it will be another case where there is a lot of attention on it, a lot of folks on all sides uh, very interested in seeing what comes to pass.
0: And Ryan, your thoughts on the big list again, 79 years old going to be put to death next Thursday.
2: I, you know, I, I don't imagine that the governor is going to grant him any sort of clemency. I think that um, the only thing at this point standing between uh, Bigler Stoffer and, and the death uh, and the carrying out of his death sentence uh, would be the intervention of a federal court. But, you know, what we've seen in the last uh, month or so from federal courts, that doesn't seem likely either.
0: Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members or listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.